0: The Claude 3 model family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning-fast and cost-effective. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com slash Claude. From the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker.
1: Hello, and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Thank you very much for joining us. If you're not already a subscriber, please be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us a nice five star review. On today's episode, Britain has a new Prime Minister. Now, until recently, that might have sounded like important big news. But these days, it's about as unusual as a headline about a dog biting a man. Rishi Sunak is the third Prime Minister in seven weeks the fifth British prime minister in a little over six years. Now, his election by the ruling Conservative Party is historic in many ways. He's ethnically Indian as the first person of Asian origin to be prime minister. But the broader picture of the Conservative Party over the last few weeks has been historic for very different reasons. Now, the party has rightly been described as perhaps the most successful party in history of the democratic world. It has governed Britain for almost two-thirds of the last two centuries, either on its own or in coalition. It's been a rock of consistency in a changing world with giant statesmen to prove it, Benjamin Disraeli, Winston Churchill, Margaret Thatcher, among others. But now, well, in the last month or two, it's all felt slightly Italian. If I may offer an apology to my Italian friends and any Italian listeners. Seems we have a different prime minister every few months presiding over an economy that seems to be sinking underwater and an atmosphere of political disarray. So what's actually going on, and can Britain finally get its act together now with a new prime minister? To discuss all this, I'm joined by Tim Montgomery, one of Britain's leading conservative commentators and thinkers. He's been a central figure in the development of modern conservative thought in Britain. He co-founded the Centre for Social Justice, a think tank focused on finding conservative solutions to issues such as poverty, inequality, and social deprivation. He then went on to start Conservative Home, a website that quickly became, and still is, the principal focal point for the exchange of conservative news and ideas. He's been a columnist in various publications, was comment editor at The Times, journal's sister newspaper in the United Kingdom. He worked briefly, I should say, as an advisor to Boris Johnson when he was at 10 Downing Street a few years ago. And Tim Montgomery joins me now. Tim, thanks very much indeed for joining the podcast.
2: Oh uh, Well, as a regular listener, Jerry, it's a real privilege to be with you.
1: You're very kind. So look, I am having a little bit of fun there. And I think a lot of people in this country are all having a little bit of fun at the kind of chaotic pictures we've seen uh, in and out of Downing Street over the last few months now, going back to the ouster of Boris Johnson earlier in the summer. Give us your take, Tim, if you would, as a very seasoned commentator and very much an inside commentator who who understands the Conservative Party very well. What on earth has happened to this party that, remember, less than three years ago was elected to Parliament with a huge majority, biggest majority the Conservatives had had since the days of Margaret Thatcher, and now seems to is languishing in the opinion polls, going through Prime Minister after Prime Minister in a state of total disarray. What's gone on?
2: I think, Gary, there are two big factors. First of all, there is just the basic fact that the Conservative Party has now been in power for 12 long years, long years that have included the aftermath of the global financial crash and have included Brexit. And all human projects, after a while, they come to a place where that early sense of mission has dissipated. Rivalries that were set aside for the greater good have become personal enmities. And there is just a sort of level of exhaustion in the Conservative Party. Um, But it's also undeniable. You can't separate, I think, the problems that the Conservative Party is experiencing from Brexit. I'm a supporter of Brexit on a fundamental level that a country should govern itself and not be ruled by central bankers, supranational judges, and the like. But it was such a divisive issue The Conservative Party in Britain has almost thought about nothing else for the last few years. It hasn't thought about tax policy or family policy or how Britain should retain its competitiveness in the world economy. It's been consumed by Brexit. And the intellectual deficit that's been at the heart of the Conservative Party ever since has meant that things that shouldn't be preeminent, like presentation, like personnel, have ripped the Conservative Party apart.
1: I've seen a lot of polling that suggests that a significant amount of buyer's remorse with regard to Brexit among voters, and significant numbers of people saying they think Brexit was a mistake, and they look at the events of the last six years, and the sort of political turmoil and the economic stagnation that we've seen in Britain over the last six years, and they look at it and they think, well, maybe, like you, I was a supporter of Brexit. Do you yourself have second thoughts?
2: None at all, which may sound too Dogmatic, but Britain was a member of the European Union for about 40 years. And you can't under unwind that kind of relationship in a few years without consequence. And I don't think you can really judge the decision to leave the European Union immediately. It's a decision that probably needs to be evaluated. And this isn't, I hope, a cop-out, but it can't really be evaluated for a decade or two. And it's not just about how Britain does outside of the European Union. One of the reasons I felt and still feel we needed to leave the European Union was European is uh, an organization of now 27 member states. They're all on different political and economic cycles. And actually, it's an organization that increasingly finds it difficult to make common decisions. It hasn't even really been able to agree a common line on how to conduct energy policy in the wake of Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. I still think that the EU will be increasingly dysfunctional. And I think Britain has been particularly badly governed in the last three years, but that won't always be the case. And so I actually think you do talk about buyer's remorse, Jerry, in reaction to Brexit. I don't think it's so much buyer's remorse about Brexit. I think it's hard to disentangle the Conservative Party's popularity from Brexit's popularity. The Conservative Party and Brexit are very much seen as joint projects, really, joint enterprises by the British people. And because the Conservative Party is so unpopular at the moment, it's tainted Brexit. But I think it is interesting that Keir Starmer, the leader of the opposition, the likely next Prime Minister, because they to lose the next election, has been absolutely clear that Britain will not rejoin the European Union. So it'll be interesting, I think, to see whether my theory is right as to whether Brexit will look better in five years' time. But I think we will get the opportunity to test that, because even if the Tories lose the next election, uh, we'll still be out of the European Union in five, ten years, and we can make the comparison properly, I think more accurately than
1: 2022 will be known as uh, the year of the three prime ministers where we hope it stops at three i suppose but let's go through those three prime ministers in turn because again you know them very well you've been very much involved in conservative politics look again as i said at the beginning boris johnson was elected less than three years ago with a big majority but immediately the covid crisis happened and of course he went through a very personal experience of covid and actually survived it And then, of course, we had the the war in Ukraine and and the energy crisis and the cost of living crisis that has followed from that. He was ousted early in the summer over what were essentially a series of allegations and question marks that a lot of people had about his personal behavior and his personal ethics and morals. Again, and as I said at the beginning, you worked briefly for him at number 10. Looking back on that, what went wrong with Boris? How did he go from being this extraordinary Political success in December of 2019, and by the way, and then got Brexit through after three years in which the British Parliament had essentially tried to block Brexit from happening. In the space of one month, he achieved all these extraordinary things. And then within a couple of years, he's basically ousted. What went wrong? How long have we got in this podcast, Jerry? <laughs> um, Look, Quite a lot of cover, so try and keep it brief.
2: <laughs> um, look, I'll always be grateful to Boris Johnson. I still have a high personal regard for him. And when I was part of his leadership campaign, I probably had dinner with him most weeks for a year or so. And he's one of the most extraordinary people I've ever had the privilege to meet and spend time with. And he got Brexit over the line. It was Nigel Farage, the leader of the UKIP party, the United Kingdom Independence Party, who basically forced David Cameron to hold the referendum. But it was Boris Johnson with his optimism, his can-do spirit. He sold Brexit as a possibility to the British voters in the 52%, 48% referendum victory. And he also stopped Jeremy Corbyn becoming prime minister, You know, an extraordinarily socialist, high-taxing... Labour leader who was defeated in the 2019 general election. So I'll always be grateful for that. But you're right, Jerry, to say that ostensibly he was removed from office because of ethical failures, because Downing Street partied when the rest of the country couldn't during the COVID era. But I honestly think the Conservative Party would have forgiven him that if he had actually governed as a Conservative. And you may want to ask me why he didn't govern as a conservative, but after the 2019 election. If you look at the record of his government, taxes in Britain hit the highest level in our post-war history. Um, immigration increase, people are crossing the English Channel from France to England in unprecedented numbers with no sense that law enforcement agencies are able to repel them. It's sort of the equivalent in Britain of the southern border crisis in America. He kept locking Britain down during the COVID crisis. Unlike, for example, Florida, he was much more Californian in his approach. The Whitehall, the British bureaucracy sort of looked you know, very woke on transgender issues. I, I could go on and on and on. But conservatives just began to feel, well, we won a majority of 80. But if Margaret Thatcher had been in power, she would have built houses. She would have simplified the tax system, she would have made major reforms. She would have spent her political capital. But Boris Johnson never did.
1: I'm glad you put it in those terms because you bring us very readily to the second prime minister, the one who will, I'm sorry to say to her, and it's kind of cruel, but she probably will forever be remembered as the answer to a sort of pub trivia quiz of Britain's shortest prime minister. But that brings us to Liz Truss. Now, Liz Truss came in precisely in the context in which you've just described. Boris is out. He's out for ethical reasons. But as you say, there's the underlying unease in the conservative party that he wasn't really a conservative for all the reasons you've outlined. And so in comes Liz Truss, who says, I'm actually going to be Margaret Thatcher 2.0. We're going to cut taxes. We're going to deregulate. We're going to get the economy. I'm going to go for growth. We can't achieve anything in this country unless we get our dismal rate of productivity growth back up. And I'm going to do all of these things. Here in the United States, I have to say, among conservatives, there were kind of loud huzzas at that. It was like, yes, exactly. That's exactly what you should be doing. This is what real conservatives do when in their office. They cut the size of government. They cut taxes and they go for growth. And then we now know what happened to Liz Truss. The party didn't like that much either. The market certainly didn't like it, but the party didn't like it. And within literally less than two months, she's out. So what happened, Tim? Well, how do we go from this unease with Boris Johnson's lack of conservatism to a conservatism read in tooth and claw and Liz Truss, and they don't like that either, and she's out?
2: Well, look, in Britain the politician that conservatives most love is Margaret Thatcher. She was the politician that turned Britain around in the 1980s. And I think some Republicans in America used to Sort of wear a sort of a wristband. What would Reagan do? You know, like what would Jesus do? You know, and Mrs. Thatcher
1: sort of has a similar sort of status. And she has a similar, slightly lower, but very similar status to conservatives in this country too. I mean, Reagan obviously is the supreme figure, but Margaret Thatcher's, you know, revered by conservatives in this country too.
2: Well, absolutely. This has probably ruined my reputation now, but you know, when other people had, you know, rock stars on their wall at university, I had a picture of Margaret Thatcher on my wall. (laughs) She was my hero (laughs) as well. But I think modern conservatives misunderstand some of um, what Margaret Thatcher was, how she behaved. And so Liz Truss came in and sort of really sort of invited comparisons with Mrs. Thatcher. She famously appeared in a tank mimicking a very famous picture of Margaret Thatcher in a tank. But people forget when Mrs Thatcher first came to power, she was very pragmatic. She knew she couldn't fight every battle at once. You know, she accepted some very large public sector increases called the Clegg Review when she first came into office. And she didn't fight the miners, who were probably the most militant trade union in Britain at the time, until actually into her second term in office, because she knew you couldn't do everything at once. So she was a great reformer. But she walked before she could run. And I think Liz Truss's big mistake wasn't to believe that you should cut taxes or that you should deregulate. All of those things are incredibly necessary. And I think most conservatives, nearly all conservatives I know, believe in those. But she tried to do it all at once. She tried to do it at a time when already the economy was precarious. And she tried to do it without really explaining what she was doing. And also, she wanted to cut the marginal tax rate, which is high facing high income taxpayers, but didn't seem to sort of focus on the fact that those marginal tax rates facing poorer people in the United Kingdom are even higher. And of course, compared to the 1970s, although Britain's marginal tax rates are higher, they're nowhere near as high and damaging as they once were. And so I think it was just too much, too quickly. At a time of economic vulnerability, when a little bit of more of the pragmatism that people have forgotten Margaret Thatcher showed was in order. And Liz Truss is not going to be remembered as a particularly good prime minister, I'm afraid. But, 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 if there's one thing that if I was her and being her spin doctor, I would say she did tell Britain that we've become a low growth economy and that we need to think an awful lot more about how we rectify that. And I hope that Rishi Sunak, the new prime minister, will reflect on that because although he's a lot more competent than Liz Truss, he was actually the chancellor that didn't do anything about those long-term growth issues. He led Britain to the point of vulnerability that Liz Truss suffered from.
1: There is a view over here, and I I want to phrase this without sounding like a wacky conspiracy theorist, but there's a plausible case over here. And actually, I read it a lot in the British press too, that Truss was sort of... Yeah, okay, she made mistakes. But she fundamentally was kind of done in by a coalition of the very powerful establishment, by the media, which hates conservatives and hates whenever conservatives try to do you know things like cut taxes and get the economy growing with smaller government. The Bank of England and other central bankers around the world, I didn't like the policy either that they're all part of some sort of global establishment. The IMF, it was pretty extraordinary. I thought actually it was pretty extraordinary the IMF to come out with that statement sort of straight after the mini budget. By the way, saying it's going to increase inequality, See, I mean, that's really nothing to do with the IMF. You know, Joe Biden weighed in very undiplomatically and unusually to say it was a bad idea, stupid idea. It was Liz Truss contra mundum and that she was taking on the deep state in the British government, the treasury and all those people who hate doing all of this stuff. The whole Liz Truss exercise demonstrates how difficult it is to really take on that establishment. Is there anything to that or is this just tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theory stuff?
2: I think something has happened in the financial and institutional architecture, economic architecture in the world. And you look at big banks, big corporates, they are much more left-wing, much more interventionist, much closer to government than I think they've ever been in the past. Partly, I think, a product of the fallout from the global financial crash. There's a crony capitalism at the top of business I think a lot of the appointments to some of the big international financial institutions are much more political than they used to be. I think the consensus amongst most of those institutions is that Britain made a mistake leaving the European Union. And so at the very minimum, I would say Britain isn't getting the benefit of the doubt from all of those institutions at the moment. But I think you can put too much into that. I think this is also true that Britain has spent an awful lot of money in recent years on unreformed public services. Our National Health Service consumes about 40-odd percent now of all government expenditure and yet doesn't deliver a very good service. The education system still is very much geared towards sort of middle-class people. It's not skilling blue-collar working class people for the new age of work our universities we send 50 percent of our kids to universities but many of those degrees aren't worth very much and we're becoming less and less competitive as a result and so I think more powerfully make the case that Britain is not tackling the long-term issues that it needs to to deserve the confidence of international markets so Yes, international markets may not be very friendly to Britain for all sorts of reasons. But actually, fundamentally, we have become a low growth, relatively high inflation economy because of some of the COVID consequences. And I think markets were concerned that Liz Truss was oblivious to those things and taking risks when there wasn't room for those risks to
1: be taken. We're going to take a short break there. But when we come back, we'll be talking more about the turmoil in Britain with Tim Montgomery, leading conservative commentator over there, and what it might all
0: mean for the United States and the rest of the world. Stay with us. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort.
1: Welcome back. I'm talking with Tim Montgomery, leading conservative commentator in Britain, about the extraordinary political turbulence over there and what the future may now hold. Okay, let's move on to the third member of the triumvirate of prime ministers that we've uh, had in 2022. Now, the new one just literally installed. We're recording this on Tuesday, installed today. We're kissed hands with King Charles and is forming his administration as we speak. On some levels, again, back to our. The earlier point, Rishi Sunak is a kind of figure cut from establishment central casting, right? Especially if you're a conspiracy theorist. Goldman Sachs, banker, you know, went to a very expensive and very distinguished private school in the UK. Very much a kind of centrist sort of figure, was very critical of Liz Truss's radical plans during the previous. Conservative leadership campaign campaigner, some of summer, the one that Liz Truss won, are saying that they were way too risky. Now, he comes in warning on the steps of Downing Street today that Britain faces an economic crisis and the sort of emphasizing that caution and prudence is the watchword here. And again, we should also make the point, as I made at the beginning, extraordinary historic moment, ethnic minority, a non-white first, non-white resident of number 10. Remarkable. I mean, for a country that the left likes to decry all the time as irredeemably racist, and a party, particularly the Conservative Party, now has the you know, most extraordinary success story. Of,
2: I'm looking forward to how the New York Times cover it. They seem to think we're still living in an imperial yesteryear. So Yeah,
1: exactly. They'll say it's basically a bail for a reminder of bitless colonies. But tell us about Rishi Sunak. And by the way, young, 42, youngest prime minister for 200 years. I think the prime minister with the shortest experience in parliament, I think in British history, and even he entered parliament, in 2015. He's only been in for seven years. But again, this kind of reassuring, cautious, centrist kind of figure. Tell us what we can expect. He's certainly making me feel old. I'm 52. <laughs> and now we've had
2: two prime ministers in short succession that are younger than me. They're the first ones that are younger than me. So
1: Rishi Sunak is dangerously close to being young enough to be my grandchild, and <laughs> my duchess. Sorry, so, uh, no, no, my child rather, not my grandchild. I'm not that old.
2: Yeah, don't do yourself a disservice. Well, look, I've never been a fan of Rishi Sunak for reasons we might come onto. But I welcome that he is the new Prime Minister rather than Boris Johnson, a return to that soap opera, or the other candidate, Penny Morden, who didn't really have the experience to be Prime Minister, they were the other two leading possibilities. And I think it is because he's conducted a cabinet reshuffle as his first act in becoming Prime Minister. And he's really brought in quite a lot of experienced ministers. And so after a, a brief experiment when we had people who really didn't know. Their way around government. We've got actually quite a seasoned, experienced team. And given the turbulence that Britain has been through over the last few weeks, that can only be welcome. The basic job of government is you know, just to be competent and manage affairs in a reasonable way. And I hope that that's what he will deliver. But many conservatives are, to say the least, uninfused about Rishi Sunak because. It's never really been clear to us what he really believes in. Um, He was the Chancellor of the Exchequer under Boris Johnson that presided over that increasing tax burden. When he was Chancellor of the Exchequer, he never really undertook a major reform. He had Nigel Lawson, who really was one of Britain's great chancellors of the Exchequer under Margaret Thatcher. He had a painting picture of Nigel Lawson on his wall. But he really is no Nigel Lawson. He didn't take any bold action. And he has always been cautious, he's always been very pragmatic, his defenders would say. And perhaps that's a good thing. But you said he's Britain's first sort of non white prime minister, which is true. There's some people have joked that he's also Britain's first Goldman Sachs Prime Minister. And some of us worry that actually what we will get from him may be okay government, and okay government is better than terrible government. But there's few signs that he will be genuinely conservative
1: or reforming. And we will now see. That's the question, isn't it? I think we all understand. Britain faces a particular set of economic problems at the moment. Huge increases in the cost of living. This ongoing energy crisis caused largely by Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, although made worse by, frankly, terrible energy policies all over Europe for the last 20 years or so faces a fiscal problem that we've seen partly as a result of the inflation and the energy crisis, but also to some extent of its own making. There's the continuing challenge of implementing Brexit. There's the challenge of dealing with Northern Ireland and getting that part of the Brexit deal through, but also the larger challenge of to what extent how much Northern Ireland coheres within the European Faces the challenge of Scotland, where there's continuing pressure for independence. What's the larger conservative program here? And again, I do appreciate we're a party that's been in power for 12 years and is running at 20% or so in the opinion polls, 25, 30 points behind Labour, so maybe it's irrelevant. But what's the right way to think, Tim? And again, you're a serious conservative thinker. You've got to deal with these immediate challenges, clearly. That's a big problem. But what's the right conservative vision for Britain? And to what extent does it have international application? A lot of Americans are always interested in what's going on in Britain. They see some lessons, perhaps, for American conservatism. What's the right vision for conservatism in the current circumstances?
2: I think the most interesting context for this that I think definitely is true of America, it's true of Australia, it's true of lots of... um advanced Western nations is, this is an oversimplification, but I don't think it's too much of an oversimplification, that poorer, more blue-collar, people who are more vulnerable to economic instability and change, cultural change, are moving to the right. And people from the ideas class, more technocratic, some would say, you know, better educated hiring, are moving leftwards. And I think this is the fundamental challenge facing conservatives around the world. How much do we acknowledge that change and move our policies to address the concerns of our new voters and doing that at a speed which could lose us support amongst those richer voters, better, more establishment voters that have been traditionally our bedrock of supporters? it was certainly the big challenge for the Conservatives after Brexit. Brexit wasn't just a vote to leave the European Union. It was a cry for help from British voters, particularly in the North, particularly in post-industrial Britain, who felt that the economy just wasn't working for them. And. Um, I won't use the language that was used at the time, Jerry, but when George um, Osborne, the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, was making the case against leaving the European Union and said that GDP would fall, an exaggerated warning, but he made the claim that a GDP would fall if we leave the European Union. People said, it's your GDP, it's not our effing GDP. And people feel like the economy doesn't work for them anymore. And I think that raises all sorts of fundamental questions about what the priorities of a conservative movement should be. So, when we have to raise taxes, for example, do we raise taxes on income, which are the, our new voters, or do we raise them on assets, potential housing, which are our sort of older, more established voters? Do we invest in universities and higher education, which is where our sort of traditional voters are, or do we invest in skills and vocational education, where our new voters are? Do we build new houses, which are Desperately what our new voters want, or do we protect the green spaces, the NIMBY's, the not in my backyard voters of our you know our existing voting base? And this is a fundamental dilemma, which I don't think there'll be I suspect specific applications of this in America and other places. Those are the specific, I think, applications in Britain. And we haven't decided where we are in balancing those two sets of interests. And at a sort of more fundamental level of a philosophical level. We have an ever-increasing size of state because the demand for state service is increasing. And why is the demand for state services increasing? It's because the family is weak. We're not looking after our young people properly. We're not looking after old young people ourselves. We're calling on the state to intervene. We're skilling our workforces so more people are dependent upon state top-ups of income in order to be competitive. We're trying to cut the supply of the state because we think it's too big. We're not addressing the fundamental reasons why the demand for the states is increasing. And these are, for me, the fundamental philosophical
1: questions that consumers around the world need to tackle. That's a very, very thoughtful account, I think, and a very accurate account of the broad politics in the West, if you like, in the last few years. Does it mean? And again, I'm thinking very much in an American context, and I should say, Tim, you, you know, you've spent a lot of time in America, you know America well too, and the Republican Party here. I'm a
2: massive fan of Potomac Watch
1: as well. I really am a political geek, and I listen to your podcast. I'm sorry, we kind of have cross promotion (laughs) on this show, Tim. No, it's terrific. Thank you very much for saying that. But does what you describe, as you well know, there are many conservatives in America who perhaps following the kind of success of Donald Trump, the initial success, at least, let's say, of Donald Trump in getting elected in 2016 and being able to tap into very much the same kind of voters who voted for Brexit. And been this point has been belabored. But you know, there's no question that there were similarities in those people you just very well describe who feel left behind, who feel resentful, who feel that the elites have neglected them. They voted for Donald Trump. And now just as you are trying to craft the right combination of policies that addresses the very specific social and economic needs of those people who are now, exactly as you say, moving rightward on both sides of the Atlantic, does that mean then that here in America, as just as in Britain, that actually that Thatcherite trussonomics, Reaganomics, the kind of tradition what what has been at least seen for the last 20 or 30 years, kind of traditional? Republican Party approach of low taxes, small state, get the state off people's backs, get you know government out of business. Does that require a rethink? And again, on, on both sides of the Atlantic, about maybe that instead of being seen as kind of instinctively hostile to the state, instinctively in favour all the time of low taxes, of cutting the tax burden on people, maybe we need to think a little more subtly and in a little more nuanced way about the role that the state does play look
2: i had that painting of margaret thatcher on my eye wall the things that she taught britain the things that reagan taught america are still very valid if you tax people too much people don't work so hard or invest so much take entrepreneurial risks and um, we all know that when things are too politicized institutions forms of government delivery, they often don't work as well as private or charitable forms of organisation. So we shouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. There's still an awful lot to hold on to from the revolutions on both sides of the Atlantic in the 1980s. But I would say that at the end of this decade, it will be 50 years since Reagan and Thatcher came to power. And during the 1970s, both of those great leaders were part of very serious intellectual projects, whether it's sort of the American Enterprise Institute and the Heritage Foundation on your side of the Atlantic, or the Institute of Economic Affairs, Centre for Policy Studies on this side of the Atlantic. They revisited, they thought deeply about what conservatism should mean. And even at the end of her time in office, in she wrote a book, uh, one of her memoirs, Path to Power, in which Margaret Thatcher was very reflective on what she got right and what she still needed to do. She talked about social Thatcherism to address family breakdown and the rise of crime. I think if Reagan and Thatcher were alive now, they would be doing big revisiting of some of their ideas as well. And if they wouldn't be slaves to the ideologies and priorities of the 1980s, then certainly neither should we. I think we are at a time of incredible change, cultural change, Geopolitical change, technological change, massive experiments in how central banks have tried to manage economies. And those big changes are all sort of, as the thinker Matt Ridley says, having sex with each other. They're interacting with each other. We haven't thought enough about what that means for the people we seek to serve. And I think that probably one of the biggest problems in politics at the moment is short-termism, following the 24-7 news cycle, social media. We don't have enough politicians, think tanks, organisations that step back and try and do some big thinking. And I know Thatcher and Reagan would have done it. And I think the challenge is for us is to do it as well.
1: Finally, Tim, a question about Britain and the wider world and relations, particularly with the US. Um, obviously, since Brexit... There's been no doubt that that there's a debate going on in Britain about global Britain, as it's called. What is Britain's role? How close should it be to the United States? How close should it be to the European Union? What role does it play in this kind of emerging Cold War between the United States on the one hand and NATO against Russia and China on the other? If you would tell my audience what you think is like, is Britain going to stay close the United States? Is it going to remain a close ally? British people talk a lot about the special relationship. Americans talk about it less, but it is undeniably has been historically a very important partnership. Britain is playing a very significant role in Ukraine right now, obviously not anything like on the scale of the United States, but it is second to the United States in that. Do you see the turmoil in Britain in the last couple of years? Do you think despite that turmoil, do you think that is still the way Britain will go and Britain will be a linchpin of the Western Alliance and a key ally for the United States as we deal with these larger global challenges? I
2: absolutely believe so, Joan. I actually issued a challenge to you and your listeners and actually to policymakers in on your side of the pond. I think Britain is one of the few nations that still meets the NATO commitment on defence. We actually certainly provided much less defence and financial support to Ukraine, but probably the first country in the West to provide support to Ukraine. And the retained defence secretary in Britain, Ben Wallace, read the speeches of Vladimir Putin and a little bit like people reading the Mein Kampf in the 1930s. Hitler made clear in, in Mein Kampf that he wanted to exterminate the Jews, just as Vladimir Putin made clear he wanted to invade Ukraine. Britain still wants to be a country that does the right thing on the world stage. And I actually think America has thought that actually has overreacted and overinterpreted Brexit. They think that Brexit was a vote to retreat from the world. I actually think it was much more Britain wanting to free itself up from an increasingly dysfunctional European Union and be free, continue to play its world in the world, but to do so on its own terms. And I don't think America has really understood still policymakers, not just at the top of the Democratic Party, but they still don't really understand most of them why we voted for Brexit. And so I think we're still ready to be a partner with America on issues of protecting democracy. Um, I think we realise that India, rather than China, is going to be the big superpower we should be Allied to. We still believe as a country in free trade. But it's America that still seems to want to always invest in that dysfunctional European Union to not really recognize that Britain is still probably its most faithful, natural ally in the world. And so Britain is still there ready to be America's best friend. My question is, does America realize that?
1: That is a very good question, Tim Montgomery, to finish this podcast. You are a conservative thinker and commentator par excellence in the UK, and I can't think of anyone better to have explained and put into context the extraordinary events of the UK in the last couple of years. So, Tim Montgomery, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jerry. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages. Thanks very much for listening. Please do join us again next week for another exploration of the big issues that are driving our world. Thank you very much and goodbye.